Well, hello and welcome to church. I want to welcome our Hebron campus online, Jasper County Jail. What up? Love you guys. And of course, DeMott Wheatfield. It's good to be here with you guys. I had an awesome day yesterday. I was sitting down in a recliner and my neck went out. So I've got no problem looking left. But looking right, we got to do the full body rotation like an oscillating fan, okay? Getting better, but uh, it's part of the problem of getting older. The older I get, the older I get. But uh, we're in the second week of our series, Seven Habits to Become the Best Version of Yourself. This is all about growing your faith from beginner's faith to fully devoted follower of Jesus. It's about that middle space. It's about getting from new to mature. Don't miss a single week. Seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. Six is the number of the devil. So you don't want to miss a single week or you'll be the number of the devil. Oh my goodness, that escalated so quickly. Last week, we talked about the habit of wisdom. That was a special week. I love the professions and the baptisms. I'm so proud of each person who chose to go public with their love for Jesus. And I'm so glad to be a part of a church that wants to go and be fishers of people, not just minders of the aquarium. And that's what discipleship is. Jesus tells us to go out and make disciples. He tells us to go out in the deep. I don't want to be shallow. I don't want to just feed the fish in the aquarium, doing you know, expository messages and inductive Bible study and all this stuff. I want to be a deep church full of deep, rich discipleship. And that's what we are. It's what God calls us to be. And also, I wanted you to be aware of a whole church effort we're doing. First Kids... Next Gen and adults are all being given a chance these next two weeks to give a special gift directly to Samaritan's Purse. Well, not directly, through our church to Samaritan's Purse, but just pass through. We're not taking anything um, for Ukraine. And uh, something to pray about, something to think about. It'll be above and beyond our regular giving, but our missions team has really vetted that particular um, giving opportunity. And uh, all the proceeds from the shop this week are going to Ukraine too. So uh, anyway, that'll be available in the lobby. Just wanted you guys to know. And uh, this week, I wanna talk about a super important habit. And this habit speaks to the deepest problems in the world right now, whether you're Christian or not. I think this habit would fix the problems in the world, honestly, if everybody practiced it. It is the essential Christian habit. Jesus invented this habit and the way that he practices it. When Christians are at their best, this is what we do. When Christians are at their worst, when you get angry at Christians for being, you know, bad Christians, this is what they don't do. And today I want to talk about the habit of peacemaking. And this habit is particularly in short supply in the world right now. It's a unique habit of Christians. I'd like to start with some examples that are going to help illustrate my point. The front door of any organization is no longer the front door. It's not the, the sign on the lawn. The front door of the church or of any organization is our online presence. It's been that way for 20 years, but it is a big deal. I'm always especially thankful when you guys take the time to leave a positive Google review. Over the past few years, people have made various attempts to cancel us, and I'm glad that many of you have already left positive reviews so that when people come and leave their one-star reviews, um, you know, your positive reviews can supersede that. Not just because it makes us feel good, but because it advances our position in search, right? The the, the more reviews that are positive we have, the higher we end up in, in search for Facebook and Google and all that. So it's a big deal. The algorithms care. Now, I take negative reviews very seriously. I, I read them. If I know the person, I'll always try and reach out to them and see if we can't you know, fix the issue. I read every single one of those. And, and a few years ago, we got one that bothered me. Bothered me because it was a pseudonym account. I didn't know, you know who the person was. I couldn't contact him. And uh, this person said the usual, you know, Pastor John speaks too fast, blah, 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 blah. His clothing choices are terrible, whatever, you know. And um, I clicked the person's profile and I saw that like 70% of his reviews or her reviews, I'm assuming it's a guy, it could be a girl, okay, it could be a Karen. But anyway, 70% of the reviews are one-star reviews. 
Okay, and uh, I actually screenshotted several of this particular account's reviews. First one says, Kathy's Antique Shop, this place is overpriced and looks like a hoarder's house. It's like, okay, wow, that's mean. Um, Schoolhouse Shop and Antiques, there are no antiques there. Kind of false advertising. Good one, good one, man, that's a good point. About DQ, they say, called them out, of course you did, for not flipping a blizzard, and the lady told me that they don't flip the pumpkin pie blizzards because of the whipped cream will fall off. I asked for my free blizzard, but was told no. I asked for my money back. Sadly, <laughs> I'm sorry. Sadly, this isn't the first time from this DQ. Devastating. I'm sure they love you as a repeat customer. Five star of Knox. It bothers me that they call an English roast a chuck roast. I've been a meat cutter. <laughs> no, you haven't. You have not been a meat cutter. And their meats are low quality and just doesn't look good and is about the same price as Angus from Strack Van Til. <laughs> nice. This one is about Panda Express. Panda Express, mind you. Their product is always meh. And I'd rather have fresh made from China House. From China House. And then about Ace Hardware, this is a good one too. If they have the product I'm looking for, it's always about double price compared to any other place. And it's such a waste of paper when the receipt is like six feet long for one item. It's like, wow, that did it. You know what I mean? Like, unbelievable. How do you think this person feels about life? How happy is this person? What are their relationships like? What is their marriage like? I'm sure it feels good in the moments where they're pounding on those keys. But when they treat everyone this way, the big question is, what is the feeling that begins to rise to the surface when you have all this unresolved conflict out there? It's amazing to start all that conflict on a forum where you have no opportunity to resolve it. You can't resolve this online. It's just unresolved conflict. I'll answer this question in just a minute. I just want to read one more review. This one is about Maine Motor Chevrolet in Anoka, Minnesota. It says, very poor experience on many levels. Ultimately brought main motors diagnosis to a different mechanic, ended up not being the problem. Tried to resolve the issue with main motors, but they would not work with me. Strongly recommend against using this dealer. Apparently the dealer reached out to the reviewer saying, we have no record of you visiting our shop. Please direct message us. And then this reviewer responded, don't see a private message option in Google reviews. Let me know, LMK, to whom you'd like me to reach out, concerning but not surprising that your database lost record of my visit. Keeping record of the people you steal from is not good business. Would genuinely love to resolve this, though. Did I forget to mention that this reviewer is different than all the other ones? The first ones were all the same person. This one is actually a man named John Hill. Over a decade ago. You know, what's funny is I still feel anxious about this. <laughs> I asked the question, what is the feeling that unresolved conflict leaves? And the answer is anxiety. That's what unresolved conflict is. It's anxiety. Unresolved conflict is fundamentally a lack of peace. That's anxiety. Sisterhood is taking a look at the rest of anxiety in the future, or tomorrow night. It's going to be a really good message. If you struggle with anxiety, you're going to love sisterhood. It's going to be super helpful. But today, I want to talk about unresolved conflict as a foundational part of anxiety. Question as we get started. Oh, golly, that hurt. Question as we get started. What did Jesus come to give to us? Some of you would jump to the conclusion, oh, pastor, he came to give us the forgiveness of sins. And of course he did. Of course he did. But why? 
What does sin do to us? Well, it hurts relationships between us and God because fundamentally, sin is conflict. Unresolved conflict. It needed to be resolved. For heaven to be a good place to be, we need to resolve the conflict. So ultimately, Jesus came for the forgiveness of sins to bring peace. He says as much in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus came to bring peace by fixing the conflict that was caused by sin. That's what he does. It's the primary work of Jesus. He is the peacemaker. Now, what does the word Christian mean? Christian means little Christ, little Christ. So what did Christ do? He was a peacemaker. If we are Christians, if we are little Christs, what do we do? Our primary habit is to be peacemakers. When we become Christians, that's what being a Christian is. Matthew 5, 9, Jesus says as much here. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Do you want to be a child of God? Then make peace. And we don't make peace by ignoring conflict. We make peace by resolving it, by resolving it. Now, here's a really amazing part of John 14, 27. I want to jump back to that. It says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. So don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. What does the world give? Troubled hearts and fear. In other words, anxiety. That's what anxiety is. It's a troubled heart and fear. It's unresolved conflict. Where does it come from? Unresolved conflict. Why do we see so much anxiety today? Because we have whole generations that do not, do not know how to practice the critical habit of peacemaking. I know some of you, you know, you look at your kids and it's like, man, I've given them everything. They have everything. They've had a great life. We live in the most prosperous country in human history. I've given them so much more than I ever had. And they're so anxious. They can't sleep. They cry all the time. I mean, little things set them off. It's because our kids are paralyzed by a mountain of unresolved conflict. Conflict they're not equipped to resolve, especially over cell phones. How do you resolve so much of this stuff? There's so much unresolved conflict, they have difficulty moving forward. Jesus talks about the importance of Christians resolving conflict. I want you to see him describing it. Matthew 5, verse 23. It says, this is Jesus' words, if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember some conflict, that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar and go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Don't even worship God until your conflict is resolved. You're not gonna be able to have a full relationship with God when you have unresolved conflict in this world. It's a big deal. This message is profound, especially in the world of antiquity. The truth of this is lost on a lot of us because we don't understand what he's talking about. The temple was the one church building in all of the Jewish world. So 100% of Jews who wanted to worship God had to go to this one church building and wait in line to make an offering to God. And then have to wait days because all the Jews had one temple to worship at. How annoying is it waiting in line? I see you guys. When 65 is clogged up because of a snowstorm, it's like, this is the hardest thing I've ever had to do. I've been stuck on 65 for an hour and a half. My life is over. And in this story, the implication is you get to the front of the line. It says, at the altar. After waiting in line, not for hours, but for days. For days. And Jesus says, at that point, you're at the altar, you wait in line for days. Don't just, you know, go ahead and sneak her in there and then go resolve the conflict. He says, stop. Collaborate and listen. Okay? You need to go and resolve the conflict in person. Then go wait in line again. Again. That's how seriously God takes this. 
He came to bring us restored relationships. Part of worshiping him is practicing the habit of peacemaking as little Christs. And peacemaking isn't avoiding conflict. That just makes more anxiety. You know what I mean? Like when I ghost and I run from conflict, when I leave that text message, you ever done this? You get a text message, you know there's some bad stuff in there. You just see the first few lines on your notifications. You're like, I'm gonna leave that unread forever. You know what I mean? Like I'm just gonna not open that. In the moment, it feels better, doesn't it? Oh, <laughs> missed out on that one there. But in the long run, it leaves us hollow anxiety, doesn't it? All that unresolved conflict, it amalgamates into a storm cloud of anxiety over your head. Some of you guys, you're living under that storm cloud. When I just brush issues under the rug, I run from friend group to friend group, I put up this facade of peace, but eventually little things, little tiny things make you furious. I might have a facade of peace in the moment, but it's fake. And so many of us, you see it, you know, little things set you off. You've got a great life and suddenly you're chucking a torque wrench through the wall of your shop. Suddenly you're weeping at the BMV because you forgot a form. It's like, dude, what is, what is wrong with you? I'll tell you what it is. It's unresolved conflict. Unresolved conflict, it's always out there. It's always out there. Peacemaking is exactly what it says it is. We have to make it. That's what Jesus did. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. He's not some weak, nerdy uncle who's trying to keep everything calm at Christmas dinner. He was a roaring lion, bringing issues to a head, courageously facing down the priests and the Pharisees or boldly confronting the woman caught in the act of adultery. So if you want to live like Jesus, if you want to experience more of the presence of God, or if you just want to deal with anxiety in your life, you got to learn to practice this critical habit of peacemaking. Now, Jesus tells us exactly how to do it. He actually gives us a four-step process laid out by Jesus, his words, not mine, on how to make peace as Christians, which is pretty cool. Matthew 18, chapter 15, or chapter Matthew 18, verse 15 and 16 says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses, you've won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take, step two, one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be witnessed by one or, or two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. And then, if he or she still won't accept the church's decision, treat that person, and this is critical, as a pagan or a corrupt tax, tax collector. He picks his words specifically there. So he gives us these four levels. First one, go privately, right? Go privately to the person, confront them. Don't gossip with a bunch of people. Don't like tweet about it. Don't do anything like that. Go to that person and make peace. If that doesn't work, then go with another godly person that you both respect. Mutual friend, <clears throat> somebody you both respect. Go to that person, right? If that doesn't work, then you ask for help from the church. A staff member, an elder, a deacon, or a pastor. I've done this hundreds of times for people as a pastor. You know, hey, we need some help mediating, mostly for marriages, but whatever. It's what we do, right? And lastly, if that doesn't work, you need to assume they're not following Christ. Now, this sounds bad. This is where the term excommunication comes from, but I don't think that's right. The Bible specifically, Jesus specifically says, treat them like a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. How did Jesus treat corrupt tax collectors? You know the story of Zacchaeus? He said, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree for I'm coming to your house today. He was friends with him. He befriended him. How did he treat Matthew, the corrupt tax collector? He befriended him, discipled him. How do we treat people who are not following Christ, even if they might say that they are. We love them, we pursue a relationship with them, and we understand instead of presuming that they have the grace of God and God's spirit in them, we assume that they do not. So we treat them as though they need it. We love them and continue to point them to the grace of Jesus. I've had Matthew 18 practice on me 
an embarrassingly high amount of times. But an example of a time that was practiced on me was when I was a sophomore at Wheaton College. This was nearly 20 years ago. But uh, we used to play a lot of games with the campus safety team. This is a bad story, okay? Do not do what I did. But we used to play a lot of games with the campus safety team. And the problem with the Wheaton College campus safety team is uh, they were just a bunch of students with student work hours getting paid $7.50 an hour to tell us to stop goofing off on campus. And the bigger problem is that many of them were friends of mine that lived on my floor. And one of them in particular was a particularly annoying dude who lived on my floor who um, really thought that he was Paul Blart Mall Cop. You know what I mean? Like he was, he really, he put on that uniform and felt like he was the man, you know? So what we do, it, well, we do all kinds of stuff, but we, one of the things we did was we get dressed in black and then we take these water balloons and we'd fill them with like chili sauce or tomato soup or whatever. And you can't use a turkey baster, you use a turkey injector, right, to fill them up. And then we'd all go out, we all got political masks, like uh, Bill Clinton, George Bush, Gorbachev, we had a Bob Dole, Ronald Reagan, we had a Boris Yeltsin, you know, I think you get it, okay? Political masks, black clothes, and then we'd go to the quad, the center of the campus, and my friend, he was rich, he had a Motorola cell phone, remember these, like, fold down the bottom, pull up the antenna, and we would call public safety on ourselves. We'd spend like $2 for one minute call, you know what I mean, to, to public safety. We'd say, there's a bunch of guys in the center of campus who are up to no good, started making trouble in the neighborhood, right? So they, um, they would come to the center of the campus <laughs> in their campus safety caravans, right? Yellow lights spinning, nothing more intimidating than the 1999 Plymouth Voyager, like coming into campus, you know what I mean? Wheaton College on the side. And uh, we would throw our water balloons at their cars. And uh, I remember one friend who was on duty that night in particular. This is why we were doing this, for this one friend who was on duty. Didn't like this dude. Liked him, but didn't like him. You know, he's a friend of me. Anyway, a few nights ago, I was sleeping, four in the morning. He woke me up, pulled my sheets off, and he shot me in the gut with his airsoft gun. Airsoft wars were violent on my floor, right? And I slept with a loaded airsoft gun under my pillow. And he came and he got me. I pulled out my gun, you know, and, you know, getting him. As he's running away, giggling. You're not supposed to do that. You don't wake a guy up at four in the morning when he's sleeping with airsoft guns. So I was mad at him. I said, I'm going to get him back. So we all went out that night trying to get him. And uh, he rolled down his window, passenger window. He's shouting across the center console at me, passenger window down. <laughs> he says, listen up, Bill Clinton. <laughs> and this is, where, this is where I remember exactly what I said very specifically. I said, you will not address me as Bill Clinton. You will call me Mr. President. And then I took my chili sauce balloon, and I'm a terrible throw. Not good at throwing. I've got girly throws. I'm bad. But I throw it, and God bless this throw. And it went right through that window, um, the open passenger window, right past his face, and it impacted on the inside, the driver's side window of this vehicle, just like Formula 51. I mean, this thing blew up, and it was bad all over. And it's one of those things, you know, 20 guys watching, and everybody's just like, like falling to the ground, and we're running. And he was, you know, this guy gets out of his van to chase me, covered in chili sauce, which made it better. And I'm like running with my Bill Clinton mask, like, you know, as fast as I can, like covering my face. I just remember, this is the greatest moment of my life. I don't think life can get better. Anyway. So we get back to the floor, cackling and whatever else. And, and, and this is a part where my memory must be wrong because it couldn't have been that night, but it, maybe it was. I don't know. Anyway, chief of public state, we're all in the floor lounge, like dying, laughing, having a great time. Like, can you believe that happened? Reliving, whatever. And chief of public safety walks into the floor lounge, unannounced, just walks in. This guy's six foot seven. He's built like Shaq. I don't remember his name. But we all get quiet. And he's got an entourage. He brings in Chaplain Kellogg. He was the campus chaplain. He was a big deal. Everybody respected him. He's like 65. It's like, oh, no. And then he brings in the resident director, Paul Chelson. Paul Chelson's the guy that expels people. He's very scary. And everybody gets quiet real fast. Director of public safety looks at us. He says, look, fellas, stuff is getting out of hand. I know you guys are having fun, but tonight was a little much. He said, I've got a bunch of chili sauce covered vans. They'll be parked in the public safety parking lot 
tomorrow morning by the hose. They will be washed, cleaned, and detailed by the time I get into work tomorrow at 8 a.m. And this stuff stops for real tonight, or I start expelling students. And that's the end of it. And it was the end of it. What did he do? He practiced Matthew 18, didn't he? Public safety came to me personally, didn't listen. Multiple public safety officers didn't listen. Finally, he brought in the church, Chaplain Kellogg, and I said, it's serious. We escalated to level three out of level four, and it was good. Matthew 18. Jesus displays his process over and over again in the Bible. If you read about his confrontations, John chapter four, verse one through 42, great passage. Jesus confronts a Samaritan woman at a well. You can read it this week, it's really good, but this Samaritan woman, the passage tells us, has been married five times and she's living with a man that isn't her husband. Imagine five weddings. Some of you guys might have been married five times, some of you guys, you know, you've been there, you've been down that road, but five, five's a lot. When somebody's been married five times, you know that they, they probably got it going on. They're probably, you know, beautiful. I mean, the world of antiquity, this woman must have been something. Like she had it going on. Husband number five was like, you know, she is, she is gorgeous. You know, look at her, whatever. But she also must have been super cantankerous. You know what I mean? Because she's the common denominator in all of her five marriages. There's something going on there too. I would assume, presume, she's probably difficult to correct and she would bristle at confrontation. Yet somehow Jesus is able to confront her. And if you don't know the story, which is a great must read, Jesus does what it seems no one else was able to do. He gets this woman to look into her own heart and see her own issues. Now, Matthew 18 sounds like a great passage, but some of you guys have practiced it. You go privately, and then you die. And it's like, pastor, I tried that, and I'm dead. You know what I mean? Like, it didn't work. How do you do it? And the problem is, Jesus gives us this four-step process, but it's just a very 30,000-foot-in-the-air summary. When you read the way that Jesus puts it into practice, you actually see that there's some bonus points behind the story that I want to give to you as well. These are things that Jesus does that help with Matthew 18. First off, Jesus goes directly and quickly. Emphasis on the quickly. He doesn't let time pass. He cuts straight to the heart. He always confronts in the moment. He tells us that if you've waited days in line and you're about to offer something to God, stop and go and resolve with a person now. Don't wait 10 seconds. Don't wait 10 minutes. Stop and do it. So often, what do we say? We say, well, I'm gonna reply to that text tomorrow. I'm gonna wait for a time when my wife is less angry at me. Jesus says, no, now, now. He does not bring in a bunch of other people. He doesn't make it super public. In fact, in all of his confrontations, Jesus winnows down the audience so that it can be as private and respectful as possible. He doesn't do a mega Google review. He goes to the person directly. I love that about Jesus, and he does it quickly, always in the moment. You read the Bible, Jesus is a roaring lion. Second thing Jesus does is a big deal is he always demonstrates an understanding of the person. This is a big deal. You see, Jesus, in his conversations, you'll note this, you know, with the woman at the well, with others, he verbalizes an understanding of, of the situation in a way that makes the person say, wow, you see me. Wow, you understand me. Wow, you see my heart. Now, Jesus is Jesus, so he can, you know, see them. He understands them. He knows the depths of their heart. That's just who Jesus is. But we are not Jesus. So don't come into the argument assuming that you know everything. This is a big deal. There's three sides to every story, right? Your side, her side, and the truth. And this is critical, right? So when you come in assuming you know everything, it's a bad thing. Seek to understand. Presume that you don't know everything. Assume that you have some things wrong. Ask questions until they get to a place where it's clear that you understand them. Years ago, I had a local pastor saying some things about me and our church from his pulpit. So I drove over to his office, and I Matthew 18'd him. But I presumed. I said, hey, look, 
there's probably some parts of the story I don't understand. So before I got into it, I took 30, 40 minutes to understand this man. I asked him a bunch of questions about his life, about whatever. And it turned out some parts of his life made him especially sensitive to people like me. And I realized I needed to be much more understanding. He said, you know what, before I even confronted him, he said, wow, you're a lot nicer than I thought you'd be. I said, well, thanks. And then I confronted him and it was good. And had I not taken the time to understand him, we would have had a turf war. You know what I mean? The Jets and the Sharks right there. Would have been West Side Story, but with churches and Christians and wingtips. You know what I mean? But anyway, that was a good moment for me. Many times, though, I have not taken the time to understand, particularly in my marriage. Who here loves to have three-hour-long arguments with their wife about nothing? Okay? That's something that I'm super good at. I'm an Enneagram type 8. A lot of times, I don't take the time to understand. And what that does is it puts your arguments into overtime. If you want to end in normal time, take the time to understand. Now, third bonus point I'm about to reveal to you most important. Most important part of the whole message. Like if you zoned out, now is the time to zone back in. This is the most important point. Okay. Matthew 18, this is the critical part. This is actually a continuation of Matthew 18. You'll see in a minute. But if you're going to confront somebody, you need to forgive them before you start, before you start. Okay. Everybody loves Matthew 18, 15 and 16. It's pretty cool, right? You go to them privately. Then you escalate to the next level you bring somebody with, right? Then you escalate to the next level you bring the church in. And then level four, you assume they're not a Christian. Makes sense. It's great. It's easy. The problem is everybody stops there. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. There is more to Matthew 18. That's not the end of the story. In verse 21, just a few verses later, Jesus explains his confrontation. And Peter comes up to him. He says, well, Lord, but how often should we forgive someone who sins against me? We got to understand, this is a big deal, this is a big deal. Um, in Jesus' day, in the world of antiquity, the idea of forgiving somebody without justice was totally foreign. There were no second chances. Globally, that was just a foreign, you mean you just forgive someone? Nobody, before Jesus taught that, that didn't exist. Jesus comes on the scene and he teaches this radical new ideology. People are like, wait, what? Say what now? And Jesus is like, yeah, you just, you just forgive them. You just give them grace. Blows everybody's minds. Everybody is silent like, whoa. You mean we could have this process called bankruptcy where people would have second chances, their debts. Yeah, like we would just do this and people just be forgiven and whatever. And our society is built off that. Western prosperity is built off this concept that Jesus gave. Now their minds are all blown. Jesus, or Peter comes up. He's like, how often should I forgive someone? Seven times? That blows everybody's mind. Seven's the number of perfection. You know, once would be crazy. And Peter, he's going for brownie points. He says, seven times? You know, should I forgive someone seven times? He thinks he's a, you know, good job. Wow, that's crazy. And then Jesus blows all their minds. He comes back, he says, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And I'm not good at math, but I did it on my calculator ahead of time. That's 490 times. And that's actually not even what Jesus means. He means infinity times. You always, always forgive. That's crazy. Notice he doesn't say, how often should I forgive someone after they apologize when they sin against me? That's not included in the passage. In fact, the implication is that you forgive before they even ask. That's Jesus. Forgive doesn't mean be a doormat. Forgive doesn't mean don't confront and call to repentance. That would be unloving. Forgive means release them of the bitterness and anger in your heart, no matter what. That's hard. But here's what you do. You say, I choose to forgive them. In the name of Jesus, I choose to forgive them. And God, I give you my bitterness. Sometimes I have to do it 10 times a day. When I'm really mad, when I'm really mad at one of my kids, or my wife, Jesus, I choose to forgive her. And I release my bitterness to you over and over again. It's not a feeling, it's a decision. And you know what it means? It means even if they don't listen, despite you doing everything in Matthew 18, 
You love them like Jesus loves unbelievers. Listen, I'm not looking at the world today thinking, you know what? I think the world needs more conflict makers. I think the world needs more people who will just stand up for what they believe in on the public forums of life. I just, I wish we had more people who would tweet their mind. You know what I mean? I wish we had more one-star reviewers. You know what we need is more protesters and complainers. We just need more people standing with mean, angry signs. I wish we had more people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez just calling people Nazis. That would be sweet. The world doesn't need more people fighting for justice and rioting and tearing things down to make things equal. The world doesn't need more people canceling people and labeling people as evil and Nazis and whatever else. The world doesn't need that. You know what the world needs? I think all of us know this. It needs people acting like Christ, practicing the habit of peacemaking. That's what the world needs. People who love like Jesus, people who confront like Jesus, people who forgive like Jesus. And you know what I love is, and, and, and the world is replete with examples of this, Christians practicing radical peacemaking. And there's so many in my life, there's so many Christians who have done this in the public setting of the courtroom. And this is, this is, this is like a dozen examples came to my mind. I picked my favorite one though um, in, in the, in, within the last few years. Um, it's a story of this guy named Brant Jean. And he's speaking to the woman who murdered his brother. This woman entered his brother's apartment while his brother Botham was eating a bowl of ice cream and she shot and killed a man. And um, the trial was cantankerous. The prosecuting attorneys, rather than accepting a plea deal, um, tried to smear the reputation of this deceased man in ways that were untrue. Right before the sentencing, I want you to hear what the brother of the murdered man says to his brother's murderer. Go ahead and play that video. I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not gonna say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see I I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't gonna ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not gonna say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. Are 
Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The creator of the universe, who laid the foundations of the earth as the angels rejoiced, hung on a cross, and he looked at the very men who were killing him. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To his followers, he said, go and do likewise. That's peacemaking. What that man did is peacemaking. What that man did is Christianity. In the same way that Jesus loved him, so he loved others. That's what peacemaking looks like. That's what brought Christianity to the corners of the earth. That's what, that's what built the Christian movement. That's why three billion peoples on the earth are followers of Christ. That's, that's what brought in the long peace that we know and live in today. Nobody did this before Jesus. But because of Jesus, there is forgiveness and there are second chances. You want to know why this tiny little movement from the backwater of Galilee would topple the Roman Empire? It is because of this. You want to know why America is the land of opportunity, the land of second chances? It is because of this teaching of Jesus's. Blessed, the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And I know some of you saw that video and you thought, I could never do that. I could never look at somebody who had murdered my sibling and love them and forgive them. And notice he didn't sweep it under the rug. He didn't just say, I forgive you. He said, I want you to go and sin no more. I want you to give your life to Christ. You must receive forgiveness from God. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The best, the best for you is Jesus. Why could he do that? What gave him the power to do it? It didn't come from within. It came from Jesus Christ. Jesus says that we can't forgive others until he first forgave us. And if you're here today and you're like, Pastor, I can't forgive. And I see what he did and, you know, that's, that's great, but I can't forgive. Listen, listen, maybe you can't. But if you receive the Spirit of God by making Jesus your leader and forgiver, I want you to know you can. The Holy Spirit empowers us to forgive in a way that I believe is supernatural. It's part of the evidence of God in our life. It's what made Christians so remarkable. The great secular historian Josephus writes about the Christians' radical ability to forgive their murderers, to forgive people who are executing them. It is because of the power of the Holy Spirit alive inside of us. And today, I want you to know, and there's a million reasons why you should choose to follow Jesus as your leader and forgiver. This is just one of them. But if you wanna be a peacemaker, if you want to have the peace that Jesus left with us, it begins when you make Jesus your leader and forgiver. It begins when you become a little Christ, a follower of Christ. And today you can do that simply by asking Jesus to forgive your sins and lead your life. On all your seats, there is what's called a blue card. That's what we call it, blue card right here. It's your note sheet. And then on this side, there's just this box you can check. It says, I want to learn more about following Jesus or I made a decision to follow Jesus. You can check either of those boxes, put your information on the other side, and drop it in the usher bucket on your way out. And we would love to contact you this week and pray with you and ask God to give you the power to forgive by the power of his spirit. When I was 15 years old, I was a man full of bitterness and anger, but the Holy Spirit of God fell upon me and I became a peacemaker. Not all the time. Obviously, my review of Maine Motor Chevrolet in Anoka, Minnesota would indicate that I've got some work to do. I'm a work in progress, but... Also on your blue cards, there's a QR code that you can just shine your phone's camera app on. 
and a link will appear, and you can get to our discussion questions. Listen, church isn't just about coming and hearing an encouraging message. It's about being transformed. I don't want you to come here and just learn something. I don't want you to come here and just be encouraged. I want you to be transformed by the truth of God in your life. So I dare you to actually apply what we're teaching today. A few questions that you can go through. Number one, I'd like you to make a list of people that you need to make peace with. Dare you to do it. You just sit down this week, you make a list. These are the people that I need to make peace with. Doesn't mean you're successful. You might have to start treating people like unbelievers. That's fine. You can do it. You can love like Jesus loved because he first loved you. If you are a Christian, I know you can do it. Secondly, do you pursue like Jesus? You don't sit there and wait for peace to come to you. You are the peacemaker. You are the emissary of Christ in the world, the emissary of peace. So bring it to the world. Do you listen like Jesus? Ask your person, hey, do I listen well? Do I listen like Jesus? Now, if your spouse comes to you, and they say, do I listen like Jesus? And they don't. Do not unleash hellfire on them, okay? You just, you say, you know what? I love you, and I can tell you some ways that you can be a better listen, listener. Same way for this one, okay? Um, do you understand people like Jesus? Okay? Do you seek understanding when you have conversations? Ask your person, hey, um, what can I do to understand you better? Or am I good at understanding you? If you get asked this question this week, this is not your chance to unload both barrels. This is your chance to lovingly help someone love you better. Last one, do you practice Matthew 18 in your life? Do you live it out? Do you live it out? This is what we do as Christians. We are peacemakers. We're peacemakers. As we close, I want to ask you to stand to your feet, all of our locations, online at the jail, at Hebron, the Mount Wheatfield. I want to ask you this question. Will you be a peacemaker this week? I think we look at a broken, hurting world, and I just say this, imagine a world where Christians were peacemakers. Imagine a Facebook, imagine a Twitter, imagine family relationships if Christians were peacemakers in all things at all times. Imagine if we were peacemakers. Imagine if we dealt with the dark things that have been secretive in our lives, the things that give us anxiety and panic attacks every time we come home. We said, look, I'm going to make peace here. I'm doing it. Will you be a peacemaker? Receive the word of the Lord. Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Pray with me. God, may we act like your children. This week, would you make our churches peacemakers? Would you make us people that pursue peace? Would you make us bold and courageous? God, would you give us the true power, the real discipline of making peace? Help us to be a people of peace. In a broken, hurting world, would you use our churches to be a part of bringing healing? Mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, God, would you, would you heal broken relationships? Would you give us the courage to do it? In the name of Jesus, all God's people said amen and amen. Let's sing this last song together, friends.